So welcome back. It's been, I think, about a month, if not a little more, since we've been together Wednesday nights. We've had General Assembly. We've had sickness. We've had different difficulties. We've had uh, part of our contingent taking a little bit longer to get across the country with some unforeseen things. But we're here. We're all here tonight. A nice reunion. Glad to be with you. And so we're going to pick it up where we left off with our membership inquirers class with the Westminster Confession of Faith chapters 27 and 28 of the sacraments and of baptism. Again, we're not going to get through it all tonight because I'm going to go out of my way to explain a few things as I have before when they come up that need extra explanation just because of, you know, a lot of people question it. So we're going to get into some extra detail about a few things. One of the things we'll do with baptism tonight is we're going to get into the whole dink and dunking sprinkling issue, okay? And we're going to get into that a lot of lot of detail to explain what we do and what we don't do and why. We'll pick it up next week and we'll spend a lot of time on further things about baptism. But one of the things we'll get into a lot is why we baptize our covenant children. Okay. And uh, by the way, we don't just baptize any child. If someone wants us to baptize their children but they're not a member of our church, really, or a visible church, we're not allowed to baptize their children. It has to be in the context of covenant, okay, with the covenant parents. So just a little bit of a teaser for next week. That's what we'll particularly focus on, but we won't get there tonight for sake of time. Uh, right now, let's open our Bibles. I, I always like to start with just reading a couple scriptures for reference because I do start to uh, race through all the notes pretty quick. Not that we won't reference scriptures, but we won't necessarily read a lot of them. So I want to give us at least a couple Read a couple of scriptures before we continue. So Romans chapter 4. I'm getting used to my new Bible. so It's funny how you just have a feel for your old Bible. You can just flip through it without thinking. My new Bible, I, it's a good thing I didn't come and, um, I was going to say audition, not audition, but candidate. It's a good thing I didn't candidate with the new Bible. You guys would have said, this guy doesn't even know how to read his Bible. Look at him flipping back and forth. Oh yeah, that's right. Before, there we go. Okay. <laughs> Romans chapter 4, verse 14. Hmm, that's not what I thought it was. Let me see here. Is it verse 11? Yes, it is 11. Thank you, Mr. Renner. I'm going to, you know, that's just another example of why many people have said I should be a doctor because I can't read my own handwriting. Okay, uh, kids, that's a joke. When doctors fill out prescriptions, you can never read them. Okay, Romans 4, verse 11. Thank you for rescuing me, Mr. Renner. <laughs> Hear now the word of the Lord. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And the thing that we're wanting to highlight tonight is the fact that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, which is also called a seal of the righteousness of faith. So a sign and a seal is something about sacraments, and we just want to recognize when you see the confessions using this language, they're, they're almost always just quoting a number of different scriptures together. Okay. Now, the other thing I want to turn with you to, um, and we'll probably go there again next week, is the Gospel of Matthew, the end of Matthew, the Great Commission, Matthew 28. If you turn there with me just for another reference point, please, Matthew 28. And we're going to start, 
Well, let me start with verse 18. I'm going to read verse 18 through the end. Again, this is the Great Commission. And uh, notice one of the things that's highlighted we're supposed to be doing here. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So that's a reference. I'll try not to say too much about it because we're going to see aspects of it in there. Um, and we'll probably revisit, we'll revisit that verse next week. Okay, so thanks for bearing with me. And um, I'm going to, again, just get through a certain section of the teaching tonight. and We'll pick it up the rest of it next week. But we're looking at the sacraments and baptism through the Confession of Faith, chapter 27 and chapter 28. So, chapter 27, in the notes, top of page 177, of the sacraments. R.C. Sproul notes, ritual is important to the life of God's people. Jesus attached a new meaning to that ancient ritual. So you see, each sacrament is a religious ritual. We're, we're in a time where people like to badmouth the word religion, but James talks about there is a true religion. And uh, people don't like the idea of ritual. That's, I think, a huge problem in religious life. There are plenty of rituals that are man-made traditions and not necessary or often uh, not allowed. And we could get into uh, the kinds of things we don't do with the liturgical calendar and worship. But ritual is actually important. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a thing about memory. You know, there's a thing about having a general thing we always say. So, for instance, we have the Lord's Supper every week, and it's very meaningful. I have a longer version, I have a shorter version, I have a medium size. Uh, a lot of times I might change what I was planning depending on how long the preacher went, you know, <laughs> but, uh, or other circumstances. I try to do the long version once a month to give you a little variety, but it's essentially the same thing. And the ritual is something that brings a regular reminder, a familiarity, and that's not bad. That's actually a good thing. That's what drills things in. That's what, you know, um, for example... And I'm not arguing we should do this in worship. But I grew up for a long time in a Lutheran church, and we always said the Apostles' Creed. So that thing's memorized for me. I mean, even though I hardly ever say it or study it a lot right now. And it's a very, very helpful tool, the main things of the Christian faith. So there's an aspect of ritual that God uses as something that you can anchor on. Okay? And that's what the sacraments are. They are religious rituals. And, you know, in a lot of other kinds of groups and things, the rituals everybody loves, you know, <laughs> the garb that often goes with that and all the different, uh, you know, ceremonial stuff. Uh, we need to recognize there is a ritual that the Lord has in, in the Christian religion, and it's to our benefit. Uh, it's not just an empty ritual, R.C. Sproul says. Uh, it, is, it has spiritual significance and reality because God assigns that to it. And that's something we have to trust. God has commanded these things. He assigns a spiritual importance. And so we have to trust that God really does something through it. It's real, and it's real to the faith of those who are believers. Um, that's something that I have to trust in, because when I'm doing the Lord's Supper every week, you know, like when we were at General Assembly, it was such a blessing for me to be served the Lord's Supper. I don't get to have that very much. 
uh, and to be preached to and sit in the pews, not just listening to a sermon online. It was like very refreshing for me. Um, but there is significance to it, but most of the time I'm administering it. And I'm trying to say the main things every time, remind you the main things. And I have to trust this is real. It's clearly commanded in the scripture. It's something we're supposed to be doing. And I have to trust that the Lord will actually use it in your lives as a regular part of our worship. And uh, I, I see it and I believe it and I know it. But as I'm the one administering to it, sometimes because I want to make sure I remember the words and, and doing the serving and all that, I can't really sit and reflect the same way you can while you're being served, you see. So I have to just trust that it's happening and God is using what he's ordained, okay? Uh, so that's just a little bit of an introduction. We look at section one now of chapter 27 of the sacraments, 27 section one. And I've given it to you in the notes. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace. So you see that sign and seal is what we saw in Romans 4.11. Immediately, let me just say, uh, I remember a big debate. I had a pastor friend over and a friend who was in our church. The pastor was a different church. And uh, there was a big debate about we shouldn't call them seals. But it's right out of Romans 4.11. (laughs) So I just want you to recognize. And they quoted this. They looked it up and said, you see, oh, no, I have a problem with the word seal. It's in the Bible. We've got to recognize the confessions are quoting the scriptures most of the time. Okay. Since I interrupted myself, bear with me here. I'll start over. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. Now again, you have all the scriptures there. What I want to highlight here is the sacraments are talking about Christ and what he does to you. That's the main thing you want to recognize here. As I always say, you've got to understand a sacrament correctly to understand why we do baptism in the Lord's Supper, but that is significant, especially as we discuss infant baptism. It's not so much about us, it's about God and what he's done for us and his covenant faithfulness. Okay. Notice the idea of confirming our interest in him, um, representing Christ and his benefits, uh, separating us from the world, uh, a visible uh, signification of that, um, engaging us to his service. Okay. So let's start to break it down. I, because I have some more explanation of this section, I've, I've given it letters to break it down. Letter A. The word sacrament comes from the Latin word that represents the Greek word mysterion and communicates a sacred spiritual bond of a mystery that is now revealed. That's from A.A. Hodge. Before I continue... Uh, you know, we don't want to get rid of mystery in the Christian religion. This doesn't mean we don't understand things that God doesn't communicate clearly. But there is a decent amount of mystery. Or can you explain the Trinity and not get kind of baffled over it? You know what I mean? Like, it makes sense, but can you really? I mean, there's mystery in the sense. We have to have a sense of awe in God. And when we're learning about the sacraments and what they do, uh, beloved, let it let it make us feel excited. Like, wow, the Lord is doing a a spiritual thing when we partake. It's not simply uh, you know, going through the motions, but the Lord is, is here working in these means of grace. There are opportunities for us to grow in grace, and there's a mystery to it, right? 
uh, but it's real. The sacraments are signs that symbolize what they represent. Uh, so signs are not the same thing as the things they represent. That's an important distinction to remember, okay? Uh, Pastor Rudell, now Dr. Rudell, uh, when we were at General Assembly and he served the Lord's Supper, he, he said, I often give the illustration, you're on the way to the zoo with your family, and there's a sign that says, San Diego Zoo. You don't stop and get out of the car and say, yay, we're here at the sign. <laughs> the sign is of that signified. The zoo is what it represents, but it's not actually the zoo, Okay. Uh, so keep that in mind. There's a distinction between the sign, bread or wine or water, and the thing it represents. They also, back to the notes, they also are, are seals. That is, they, quote, confirm our interest having a claim or share in or title to in him. That's Wayne Spear. And they engage us to the service of God in Christ, the confession says. Like the seal of a message with the king's ring. The sacraments are, quote, a confirming testimony to the believer concerning what he has received. That's G.I. Williamson. Again, that's a big emphasis. It's about what God has done. It's about what God is confirming. It's about how God is reassuring us, okay? Sproul notes, that is why we can say, as Luther did, when Satan comes after us to accuse us, quote, get away from me. I'm baptized, I bear the ineradicable mark and sign of God's promise. By the way, I have something related to that by Thomas Watson's quotes I have for you on baptism. So come back next week for that. Related to Luther. But they also express our loyalty like a soldier to his king. Quote, the sacraments must be seen from a covenantal perspective. As they, and by the way, earlier, chapter 7 of the Confession, we spent a lot of time on covenant. Covenant is the way we understand all of Scripture. It's really the way we interpret and understand all of Scripture, okay? So as they point to the gospel, the sacraments confirm God's promises, I will be your God. And as they express our commitment to Christ, they indicate our response to God's grace, we are your people, Revelation 21.3. They also express that we belong to the kingdom of heaven as our exclusive badges of membership. As Hodge says, I like that. The sacraments are badges of membership. Every group has its badges of membership. The sacraments are the way of communicating we are Christ's. We are Christians. And we'll look at the distinction between the two sacraments, but they're identifying us. That's what the sacraments are doing. They're identifying us and assuring us of who we are in Christ. Letter B. The sacraments are not magical, but they are effectual for true believers. Jesus spiritually feeds our faith, and we grow in grace and sanctification together in him. As signs and seals of the covenant of grace, they are other means given by God for us to exercise godliness. They really exhibit our communion, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, uh, fellowship, koinonia, with Jesus Christ and with one another gathered together in the spirit, so the larger Catechism 161 and shorter Catechism 91 call the sacraments, quote, effectual means of salvation. Not initially, but ongoing. They do not create saving faith, but they strengthen saving faith. Quote, the word, of, the word is the instrument of regeneration. The sacraments are meant to edify, along with the word, those who are already in grace. 
The word is used to originate the communion of saints, whereas the function of the sacraments, top of page 178, along with the word, is to quicken and sustain that communion. The word is the gospel addressed to the ear. The sacraments are the gospel addressed to the eye. And that's uh, Benjamin Green. Uh, I think it's more than the eye, though, right? Think about how the Lord involves all the senses, right? Even with baptism, the sense of touch, right? Even temperature that relates to touch, I guess, uh, and the sight, of course, right? You can even argue the sense of hearing. I mean, you hear the water usually, right? And the Lord's Supper, the sense of taste, right? Uh, so he engages all of our senses to just, in every way, affirm us of the truth of what the Word is saying, you know? Um, it's, it's really makes a lot of sense. It's really beautiful. We are psychosomatic beings, right? We are souls with our houses, our bodies, and uh, the Lord touches all of our senses to assure us of our salvation, okay? I'm thinking more of the Lord's Supper when I say that, but okay, top of page 178, uh, chapter 27, section 2. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union uh, between the sign and the thing signified. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. Uh, this is important. It, it kind of relates similarly to when we talk about Christ, two person. Oh, excuse me. Um, let me make sure I get this right. <laughs> two natures, one person. It's hard. You got to get it right. Be careful. The Trinity is three persons, one nature. The Jesus is uh, two natures, one person. But sometimes we'll, the scriptures will speak about Christ as God, but referring to a human thing or refer to something of Christ's humanity, but call it something of God. So similarly with the sacraments, like when I serve you the Lord's Supper, I speak of the body and of the blood. Um, but there's a spiritual relation, a sacramental union between the thing and the thing signified. The name and the effects of the one are attributed to the other. So it's not really his blood. It's not really his body. We'll get into that distinction with the Roman Catholic Church when we get to the Lord's Supper in three weeks from now. Uh, you know, the water is, is really just water, right, for instance. Um, but it has something that it's signifying, the washing of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Okay, this, let me explain section two. The sacraments themselves are not actually the things they signify, but the way Scripture refers to them figuratively sometimes sound like, quote, the effects of the one are attributed to the other. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll refer to the, uh, to the bread, for instance, and we'll say the body of Christ, okay? Um, but it's really bread. Westminster Larger Catechism 162 similarly distinguishes the two parts of a sacrament. Number one, the outward and sensible sign, and number two, the inward and spiritual grace thereby signified. While the sacraments in worship truly convey spiritual blessing to our souls, the elements themselves are purely symbolic memorials, quote, in remembrance of me. And um, I'm going to refrain from talking about that as it relates to the Lord's Supper. Three weeks from now, Lord willing, we'll get into um, some debates about the Lord's Supper. Is it strictly memorial? Uh, different things, okay? The sacraments have no power to save, but they represent and affirm that true believers are in union with Christ and commune with him. They remind us through the senses of who we are in a very helpful way to complement and always be accompanied by the word. 
They are, quote, pictures of the truth they represent. And I, I like how uh, Pastor Richard Phillips says that um, we, have, we have drama in worship all the time. It's the sacraments, and particularly the Lord's Supper. When we take of the Lord's Supper, we're remembering the passion of Christ. We're remembering all he went through. We are remembering the drama of his going to the cross and dying on the cross for us. We don't need to come up with all this other drama. But it is a picture. Uh, some people say, the, I think it's Calvin says, the, ser, the, the sacraments are picture sermons. Okay? Uh, it has to be accompanied and informed by the word, but they have a power to help communicate. They remind us that Jesus is literally, though spiritually, with us to the end of the age. They help us experience spiritually the reality of these covenant promises. The larger Catechism 161 says they actually strengthen and increase our faith. This is why it's so important to, to do them. They're commanded, but they're actually means of grace. They strengthen our faith. Uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper simply express the verbal content of the gospel in nonverbal form. That's uh, Williamson. Further, what is most significant in the sacraments are not the elements, but the actions involved. You'll notice when I give the Lord's Supper every week, I emphasize a sacramental act of Christ and of you in responding to it. It's the activity of partaking together that is the most significant aspect of the sacrament. I mean, if bread and wine just sit there, what is that, right? It's the activity of partaking that is the most significant part. Okay, section three of Confession of Faith 27. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them, neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it, but upon the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains together with a precept authorizing the use thereof a promise of benefit to worthy receivers. This is actually a really pastoral comment. Okay, and... Uh, let me go ahead and comment. <laughs> uh, grace truly is conveyed or exhibited, it says, which means, as Dr. Spear explains, provided, granted. Grace is really provided. Something's really happening for us. It's just communicated. Um, but not automatically through the water or the bread and wine. This is against the Roman Catholic Church, uh, Church's view of ex opere operato, which means working uh, from the working of the work. They, would they teach that it, it's actually the sacraments that have a power for you. It's the actual doing of the sacraments that has power for you. And uh, that's being denied here. There's nothing in the sacraments that do anything. Christ is communicating in our participation and activity, just as he does with all the other aspects of worship. But the elements are not actually doing anything in themselves. It's not like our popper of confetti we use tonight to re-announce the, the gender, Right? The sacrament isn't something inside that ready to explode of itself. It's you're eating bread, you're drinking wine. Yes, they have those physical properties, but no spiritual properties. They are signifying uh, the thing that's real by the spirit. Okay, there's nothing happening. We're not unleashing something from the bread and wine directly. Okay, uh, top of page 179. Nor by the physical application or consumption, but by the spirit feeding our faith in the act of commemoration. Note. The symbolic acts in the Lord's Supper are emphasized in its administration as paramount. 
Now, before we continue, it's my understanding that Luther, Lutherans, I think, believe, and we'll get into this with the Lord's Supper more, I keep jumping ahead. Um, I, think, I think Luther believed that uh, anybody can take the Lord's Supper, and it, it really is his body and blood. Even if you're not a Christian, it is that. You know, it isn't. It's just bread and wine. It is only having a spiritual significance for true believers. It does nothing for a non-believer. It's a witness to them, but nothing is really actually happening for them because it's by faith and by the Spirit. It's not by the activity. Uh, chewing bread and drinking wine is nothing for an unbeliever. Okay? Uh, back to the notes. God wisely uses all our senses to touch our soul, but the actual grace conferred is not by any power in the signs, but by the Spirit as well their actual effect does not depend on the person administering them. See also the larger catechism 161 and the shorter catechism 91. Okay, this is important. What if you find out later your pastor ends up being an unbeliever or he's defrocked from the faith? Is your baptism now in question? Is the legitimacy of taking the Lord's Supper all these years, now it couldn't have possibly been real because it turns out your pastor was a fraud all these years. You see what they're seeing? This is significant. The answer is no, it was still real because it's not dependent on the person. It's dependent on Christ and the word and the spirit. This is great comfort for anyone that later has a pastor deposed as a heretic or ungodly man. This is relevant to the early church Donatist heresy. By the way, ay, 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 uh, that's not spelled correctly. It's not donates, it's Donatist. And I thought I corrected that all today. Uh, we'll get into that more. But uh, there was a time where, oh, a lot of people denied the faith, so now we're going to question the legitimacy of baptisms and things for people who are ministered by them. And Augustine especially was teaching, no, 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 we don't question that because it's not based on that minister. It's based on Christ ministering, okay? The efficacy of the sacraments depends only on the fact that God authorized and commanded them and that the Holy Spirit applies them with the word of institution to one's faith. This notion will relate particularly to the question of rebaptism directly addressed in the next chapter. By the Spirit, quote, worthy receivers. That's the thing to recognize in terms of it actually making a difference, actually having its effect, worthy receivers. And that doesn't mean we're worthy. It means the Lord has made us truly believe and trust in him. Were the receivers, that is, repentant and reverent, truly benefit. They're the only ones who actually benefit. Okay? Uh, Sproul also highlights that, quote, the sacraments are Trinitarian. The Father gives authority to his Son. The Son institutes them. The Holy Spirit applies or empowers them. Of course, early on after the Holy Scriptures, we studied God and the Trinity. Section 4 of chapter 27. There be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the gospel. That is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any, but by a minister of the word, lawfully ordained. Only two sacraments are ordained by Christ in the gospel, baptism and the Lord's supper. The Roman Catholic Church's five other sacraments are invalid, I'm going to take you to the footnote just to be familiar with what are the other quote-unquote sacraments. We deny this. Only baptism and the Lord's Supper are legitimate scriptural sacraments. But if you look to footnote 520, 
At last, the number seven was suggested during the 12th century and determined authoritatively by the Council of Florence, 1439, and the Council of Trent, 1562. These are, so here's what the Roman Catholic Church says are sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, the Lord's Supper, penance, extreme unction, orders, and marriage. I'm not going to get into it, but just so you know, the Roman Catholic Church says all of those are sacraments. Okay, Remembering what we've described a sacrament as, I think you can understand, no, 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 no. Uh, But just a reminder, it's only the Lord's Supper and baptism. The confession here teaches that only a minister may officiate these sacraments, demonstrating a three-office view of church government. There's a lot of other places in the confession and catechisms, and we've, we've, we've taught about this, and, and I'm, I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not getting into it too much. When we get to church government, I'll speak to the three-office issue a little more. But notice it's saying only the minister may administer the sacraments, not a ruling elder. The ruling elder assists by bringing them out, but it's the administration of the sacrament. Uh, the minister speaks the words, uh, prays for the Lord's blessing on it, and all those things. Okay? Um, you're going to see that again. Scripture says that ministers of Christ are to be the stewards of the mysteries of God, 1 Corinthians 4.1. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, Hebrews 5.4. There is no evidence in Scripture to show that other than church officers are ever administered the sacraments in the apostolic church. Excuse me, ever did administer the sacraments in the apostolic church. This also uh, preserves their solemn sacredness. You know, when something's really important, you have certain people who are assigned to those things, right? Um, Not that this has to be the case, but I think in a lot of our homes, Thanksgiving dinner, someone is usually identified to be the one that carves the turkey. And uh, I am happy to defer that to someone else. I'm no good at it. (laughs) But you know what I mean? It's like, that's uh, kind of a loose illustration. But, you know, we have traditions. We have uh, have understandings of dads do that a lot of times. Or there's a certain person who does this or does that. And a lot of other formal things, a certain person is identified, right, to do a certain thing. No one else is supposed to do it. And that preserves the sacredness of it. The sacraments are special. They're to be treated as special. They're to be communicated as special. And we have special rules about it from the scriptures. It reminds people these are special things. We're to be approaching these things with a solemnity and uh, an awe and a respect and a thankfulness, Okay. Uh, Section 5, the sacraments of the Old Testament in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited were, for substance, the same with those of the new. Okay, top of page 80, I'll explain a few things, give you a little bit from Thomas Watson, and we'll move into the first part of baptism tonight. So explaining the last part of our Confession 27.5. R.C. Sproul points out, that the principle set forth here is, quote, vital to the Reformation understanding and rationale for infant baptism, among other things. Okay, so uh, I'm not going to get into that tonight. I keep trying not to get into the stuff coming up, but that's something to highlight, especially if you're not confident or you're learning about this idea of infant baptism. R.C. Sproul is pointing out this section is a significant foundation for properly understanding why we baptize our infants uh, a child in a covenant family, okay? So I want to highlight that to you. And again, that's why I say making sure we understand the sacraments first informs how we understand each of the sacraments, okay? 
Uh, keep this in mind for the next chapter, as I've said. The Old Testament sacraments of circumcision, Genesis 17, and the Passover meal, Exodus 12 and 13, exhibited the same substance as these New Testament sacraments. That's the main thing being emphasized here. The Old Testament sacraments adjusted now that Christ has come. The New Testament sacraments, they have the same meaning. Okay? Uh, Christ changed them to baptism, Matthew 28, Colossians 2, 11 to 12, 1 Corinthians 10, 1, 4, and the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, 26 and following, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 11, 23 and following. You want to look at those verses if you want to think ahead how Christ has adjusted the Passover meal to circumcision, or excuse me, circumcision to baptism and the Passover meal to the Lord's Supper. We will look at that more, but those are scripture references to help recognize that's what is happening which is why uh, we'll see the language goes back and forth between Old and New Testament words uh, because there's such an overlapping significance. It's the same meaning, uh, just an adjustment in the fact that Christ has come now. Okay. You might remember in, in Lord's Day evenings, we're going through the standards and we're learning about uh, the types and signs of Christ, right? I believe it's the larger catechism in particular. I think it is. Um, yeah, it is. And... We looked at the Passover, we looked at circumcision, it's taking us through all these Old Testament things, looking ahead to Christ, fulfilled in Christ. Now we look at Christ having fulfilled them, and thus some things go away, but the sacraments are adjusted to reflect that he's come. So you might think about this as we come back to that, continuing that in the Lord's Day evening. Um, Back to the notes. With this being the case, notice that the first sacrament is a one-time act of entrance into the covenant community. Now, I'm going to qualify that a little bit more, but it particularly has in view if it's a new believer, an adult, you know, first-generation believer coming into the church, it is admission into the church. It's the same thing with circumcision, right? If, if a sojourner if a non-Israelite wanted to be in the Israelite community, they could be. But what had to happen? Circumcision. It is an initiation rite. It is an admission into the visible church rite. It's taking on the sign of being God's people. Okay? Which is why, what does David call the Philistines and uh, Goliath? You uncircumcised. Right? Because it represented being God's people. Okay? And baptism is the same thing. The first thing is an act of entrance into the covenant community, and the second is an ongoing act of spiritual fellowship and sustenance. Baptism is a once-for-all rite of initiation, Matthew 28, 19, Galatians 3, 7. And the Lord's Supper is a regular rite of remembrance, 1 Corinthians 11, 23-26. When we get to the Lord's Supper, we're going to talk about the frequency. Okay? Uh, they express our union in Christ and our communion with him in one another. Circumcision and baptism both represent spiritual regeneration and cleansing. And Christ is now our Passover. By the way, who cleanses and regenerates us? Is it us or is it God? God. He cleanses and regenerates us, right? Which is why the sacrament of baptism as related to the circumcision is about what God do us and his faithfulness to us. And it's not about our faith response. Not primarily. Okay, That's a lot of what needs to be understood as we get into the infant baptism issue. Okay, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. 
That's true of the sacraments, and that's just true of the Old and New Testament as well. Uh, The bloody signs were superseded by the two bloodless signs, but the significance remains the same. That's Williamson. That's similar to the Sabbath move. It's the seventh, it's one in seven, but instead of the last day, now it's the first day. Why? Because Christ is resurrected from the dead, the Lord's day, the first day of the week. It's the same meaning. It's now the first day of the week because of Christ's resurrection. The Sabbath doesn't go away. It changes to the first day of the week, right? And the same thing. The sacrament of initiation doesn't go away. It's now baptism. One of the main reasons is why? Because the blood of Christ has been shed, so there's no longer a bloody sacrifice. We're washed by the blood of Christ, which is what the water represents. It's also what the blood represented in terms of, um, you know, the, the church and having children and, you know, that kind of thing. But also uh, the Lord's Supper. There was the sacrificing of the animal, right? The blood. There's no more shedding of blood because Christ has come. The true Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. So now we have bread representing him and that he is the manna and the bread of heaven, giving us true eternal life, Right? So the blood goes away with both sacraments because Christ has come. They have to adjust because Christ has come, but they're not done away with. So even we see in the Lord's Supper, what is it? It's the last Passover meal. By the way, I emphasize the word last, right? It's transitioned into the Lord's Supper. Okay. Some closing remarks by Thomas Watson from his book, The Ten Commandments. It's interesting. In his last section of the book, after the Ten Commandments and the law and all these things, he has a long section called The Way of Salvation. And this is not the first thing, but included in that section is baptism in the Lord's Supper, along with prayer and the word of God. So uh, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2 might be in view. Okay, so just a few thoughts about the sacraments from Thomas Watson. The sacraments are visible signs of invisible grace. It is God's will that his church should have sacraments, and it is God's goodness thus to condescend to weak capacities. To strengthen our faith, God confirms the covenant of grace, not only by promises, but by sacramental signs. These two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are sufficient. The one signifying our entrance into Christ, and the other our growth and perseverance in him. And as I read that, maybe another illustration um, I'm not arguing people have to wear a wedding ring. I know a lot of the Puritans were not for it. Uh, I know Elder Renner shared with us years ago, Matthew Henry supported it. Um, But nonetheless, I am married. Right, Fernanda? Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. (laughs) The children say amen. Don't you forget it. I'm married and I know I'm married. Uh, But you know, sometimes it's kind of nice to look at my wedding ring. It's a sign and a token confirming the vows and the promises and the relation before God. There's something nice about being able to look at my wedding ring, which is nice too because I'm not sure I could get it off anymore. <laughs> That's a whole other issue. But um, So there, the sign of the thing signified, it's just a piece of metal, but it represents that I have made a covenant with my wife and we are married till death do we part. Sickness and health. Through sickness and in health, better or worse, till death do we part. And it's a reminder of that. And that's what the sacraments are. They are a token of the reality of what we have in Christ through the blood of the everlasting covenant. It's kind of similar to the rainbow, according to the scriptures, right? The rainbow is a sign I'll never flood the earth again. We know this, but it's kind of nice to see the rainbow to be reminded of it. Especially 
you know, he's not going to flood the whole earth, right? So it's kind of nice when it's raining a lot, you know. <laughs> it's, we know it's true, but it's, it's nice to look at the symbol. Nice to look at the token. And so baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is why we look back to our baptism also, you know, when Satan's tempting us, remember Luther says, I am baptized. I remember what it means for me, what God has done for me. I remember who I am by what this signifies. Okay, it's pretty powerful. Okay. Chapter 28 of baptism and a reminder, we're not going to cover it all tonight, but I'm going to give you a try to get through the first section in terms of where I've marked it. Of baptism... Chapter 28, now I give you this little note. Remember that the new covenant fulfills God's promises to Abraham. R.C. Sproul. Remember the new covenant fulfills God's promises to Abraham. Okay, 28, section 1 of the Confession of Faith on Baptism. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. You go through and look at that, what baptism is mainly, primarily, and you'll recognize that it's baptism is reminding us what God has done for us, what God has claimed over us. And frankly, if it's based on us and our response, that's not going to give us a whole lot of assurance a lot of the time, right? <laughs> it's based on God and what he's done for us. Okay, top of page 181. Baptism was ordained by Jesus to be continued in his church until the end of the world, the confession says. Uh, baptism is admission into the visible church. Look at the larger catechism 165 and Galatians 3.27. By the way, uh, if you want to go back or if you're new to the church, I preached through the whole larger catechism, took about four and a half years, and there's a lot on the sacraments, just like all the catechisms, right? So there's a lot explaining the sacraments, explaining baptism and explaining the Lord's Supper. And uh, I'm pretty sure I inserted an extra one on baptism by Pastor Jeff Stuyvesant, who was here at the time. And we were in this section at the time. So you can go and go to the larger... By the way, I'm assigning you, if you're taking the class to, to join the church or graduate to communicate membership, I'm assigning you to read the catechisms and the confession and look at their scriptures, so you're going to see that. There's a lot of detailed explanation in the larger catechism, uh, which is why I'm not giving you a ton of it now. Uh, but this is why it is crucial that you are baptized before you partake of the Lord's Supper, because baptism is admission into the church. You must first belong to the visible church. Exodus 12:48, Joshua 5, 7 to 11. Again, you have to be the member of something before you can partake of its benefits. I just had a pastor email me this week. You might remember uh, Doug Duma. Remember him, the Appalachian hiking and everything? He's a pastor in the Bible Presbyterian Church in New York now. He says, do you get trouble with people mad at you because they can't take the Lord's Supper unless they demonstrate membership in a visible church? 
oh yeah. <laughs> if I say others have no problem with it, in fact, they like it. <laughs> you know? But he says, oh man, we're just getting such a difficult time. Do you put anything in your bulletin? I said, yeah, here's what we put in our bulletin. Here's a link on Puritan Board. Here's a long email I sent to one of our visitors' years to explain why, <laughs> you know, which is a common standard thing to fence the table. Uh, but you, for instance, you can't take the Lord's Supper if you've not been baptized. And a lot of people, you know, hitchhiking from church to church have never really been baptized or been formally a member in any church. But let me ask you something. If you go to Costco and you don't have a card showing you're a member of Costco, are they going to let you in to buy their amazing bread and eat their amazing free samples? Which I've been rejoicing are back after COVID. That's funny. I think the people are always like, man, you got to get out more because I'm like, woo, the snacks are back. You know? But the only reason I'm in there is because I have a membership. Right? Now, I'm not trying to argue that we pay membership into the in the visible church. But the understanding is, you don't, we go to the why. Abraham went to, to exercise the why this week. Did you have to show your membership card? Yeah. Are they going to let you exercise if you're not a member? We understand this and everything else. But somehow the church, everyone's allowed to do whatever they want. Well, that's not what Jesus says. What do we see with baptize in the Great Commission and teach them to do everything I tell you to do, right? And clearly there's a connection to the Old Testament. You cannot take of the Passover meal if you've not been circumcised. Now, of course, this is only applying directly to the men representing the families. The same concept continues over. Baptism, back to the notes. Baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, visibly representing for true believers their engrafting into Christ with all his benefits, Galatians 5.25. It mainly connotes our union in Christ together. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.2 says they were baptized unto Moses. So it's mostly about this idea of being brought in together as the church. Baptism basically has to do with a merging or identification. So we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, the baptism is into the body of Christ. Now that's Jay Adams. By the way, that's from the book Meaning and Mode of Baptism, which we will be going to a lot in the rest of this study. Baptism is mainly a sign of God's faithfulness Excuse me, baptism is mainly a sign of God's faithfulness, not our faith. And that's why it's a means of grace, (laughs) you know. I don't want to have my faith and faithfulness put out before me as what's supposed to make me feel good about myself in church. I need the sacrament reminding me of who God is and what he's done to me, regardless of the idiot that I am most weeks, right? (laughs) Most weeks, every week, right? That God is faithful to me. God is faithful to his promise. God is faithful to be my father, even when I am a prodigal son. Uh, Van Dixorn rightly notes, the enduring importance of baptism rests in what what it always says about God and his gospel, and not what it sometimes says about the person who is baptized. Okay, It's not about my faith acceptance of God. It's about God's acceptance of me and his taking me in as his person, and his faithfulness to me. And by the way, that's, I think, something we need to challenge ourselves. We live in a day, and I think in a nation, where it's all about me. It's not about me. (laughs) God help me if it is. I do want to go to footnote 528. I neglected. I want to look at that with you. Look at footnote 528. The predominant theme in scriptures references to baptism is union with Christ and the triune God, which embraces and transcends all other subordinate aspects of the meaning of this sacrament, Williamson. So the idea of a sacrament is union with Christ. 
some of the language and imagery is uh, figurative and can't be overdone with its meaning. And I'm going to give you a good quote from uh, Gordon Clark now to help draw this out. Therefore, over against the Baptist view of baptism being a symbol of burial with Christ, that's what a lot of Baptists will argue based on Romans 6, that it's burial with Christ, because it uses that language. Gordon Clark explains, if burial were to be symbolized, instead of using water, it would have been more appropriate to dig a grave and use earth. Water fits in with washing. That's from his book, What Presbyterians Believe. Romans 6 talks about being baptized in Christ in terms of union with Christ, and therefore we're dying to ourselves and we're living in Christ. But it's communicating about, uh, it's using images of the reality of what it is to be put in union with Christ. Death to self, life to Christ. But it's not really intending to talk about the manner, the mode of baptism. It's not really doing that. It's talking about the significance of baptism with just union. And if it really is so much about being buried with Christ, then why wouldn't the sacrament be dirt? It's water. Because what it means is washing and regeneration, which is what the Holy Spirit does. Okay? Um, okay. Section uh, 2 of chapter 28 on baptism. Middle of page 181. The outward element to be used in this sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. So just a brief explanation here. Baptism must be by water. Anybody have a problem with that? Does that surprise you? <laughs> Pretty obvious, right? But if you look at one of the footnotes, apparently they started involving, uh, I think I heard one time, sand in early church history. Sometimes they started to mix oil. Like, no, you, you do what the Bible says it is to be. I'll get into that a lot more with messing around with the Lord's Supper. But it doesn't seem like most people have a problem understanding it's water. may have to do a lot more arguments about how much water to use <laughs> and how it's applied to the person, but we all agree it's water. Okay, it's, a, it's to be explicitly Trinitarian. It has to refer to the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. There are, uh, I think they're called oneness Pentecostals usually, who deny that. Okay? Uh, but it's to be Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It is to be Trinitarian in its language. Okay? with a proper Trinitarian understanding. Uh, notice also the three office emphasis of ministers only administering the sacrament again. You know, I think this gets lost. Frankly, I just don't think a lot of ministers read the standards very frequently. So I'm glad we keep going through membership class like this. Notice again this three office emphasis only by a qualified, ordained minister. It does not say teaching elder. And it doesn't say elder. It says a minister. It's recognizing a three-office thing. I'm emphasizing this without a lot of explanation because I'm going to talk about it more when we get to the, uh, the chapter on church government. Okay? But notice, notice this stuff taken for granted that I think people just ignore or read over, don't recognize these things that are t being understood. Okay? Uh, some of you are saying, what are you talking about? Say, Hang in there with me. We'll get to that chapter. Okay? Um, chapter 28, section 3. Dipping of, okay, here we go. This is the rest of the study, and this is where it gets uh, at least entertaining and intriguing, hopefully not offensive. But uh, thanks for bearing with me. And uh, as uh, Elder Renner said, often when you sat down to listen to the preaching of Pastor Bell, you had to buckle your seatbelt. And uh, so buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> okay. Dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. Now, children, 
uh, and especially Abraham, I know that you've already had many discussions with friends. This is going to relate also, more importantly, next week to why we baptize our children. But I want you to recognize the mode of baptism is often really a big deal to a lot of people. Uh, a lot of the broader evangelical church thinks you have to dunk a person. Okay? And I'm going to demonstrate to you that is never in view in scripture or church history. Okay? And uh, I'm going to get a little polemic about it, but I'm going to try to behave myself. Okay? <laughs> um, next week is the more significant issue that we have to explain to many visitors. By the way, let me just say again, there's two reasons more than anything else that people eventually leave the church when they're Oh, and by the way, they always say, this is my church, I found my church, right? You know? but, and, I, and I always tell our visitors, our, our visitor we love to keep having, I told her early on, let me tell you why people leave all the time. And I want you to count the cost and really listen, right? So not to put pressure on you, but I said that to you, right? You might remember, I said, there's two reasons people always leave. The Lord's Day and baptism. They don't actually want to not work on the Lord's Day and keep it holy and worship. That's the big issue, just not working, you know, let alone coming back for evening worship. But the other big thing is baptism. A lot of people kind of love the idea of who we are, but they don't think they really need to baptize their children. A lot of times they're not even members in a church and they don't even agree membership is something that's biblical. We'll get to that. Uh, so I just want to set you up. This is why I'm really belaboring the points because this is the main reason people don't stick around. And we always say, would you please study this with us before you make a decision? Oh, yes. And they don't. They wait about six months. They think they're going to tire us out and we'll just start ignoring it, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> but the mode is significant. Some churches, Presbyterian and Reformed, will accommodate people with the other view. We will not. Confessionally, I don't believe I can, and I can't in good conscience. All right, here we go. You ready? Flip the page. <laughs> page 182. Dipping or dunking a person is not necessary, the confession says. Okay? At the very least, it's saying it is not required. But I'm going to argue with you, all, particularly by the help of Jay Adams and John Murray, it's not allowed. This does not mean immersion is an option when it says it's not necessary, but rather that the practice of dipping and dunking is not necessary. It's rightly or correctly administered instead by pouring or sprinkling. Pouring the water over the head or sprinkling on the head. That is the biblical mode. And by the way, the mode of something communicates something, okay? And there's a significant overlap and connection with Old Testament rites of things. And we're going to see that. So the mode and the manner communicates the meaning, okay? J. Adams explains, mode cannot be separated from meaning. The sacraments are symbolic. If so, then mode and symbol are one and the same. Mode and symbol, and therefore mode and meaning, cannot be divorced. Again, this is his little book, uh, The Meaning and Mode of Baptism, where he's arguing, as I am from the confession, dipping and dunking is not an option. Sprinkling and pouring is the only biblical mode, and we'll get into this more. A number of considerations are in order about baptism's mode and meaning. So again, what we're talking about with everything I'm going to give to you is are we supposed to dunk people underwater or are we supposed to pour water on their head? That's what this discussion is about right now. Okay, And I'm going to demonstrate to you scripturally and historically it is not about dunking. It is about pouring. It's about uh, sprinkling. Okay, Now, 
Please pay close attention to everything I'm giving you because I'm going to throw a lot at you. Please go back and look at it later. And by the way, uh, I have this separated out on our website under the topic of baptism for people. And one very, very uh, strongly opinionated Reformed brother who was a Reformed Baptist here years ago who visited us a few times, went on business. Uh, he kept wanting to call and talk about this with me, and he eventually did come to agree with our view. I never thought it was going to happen, but he did. Because So I would encourage you to look through this clearly and be ready to explain it to others. No, letter A. Christ's baptism was related to his anointing to office as with the sprinkling or pouring of oil over the head of the priests and kings. Exodus 29.7, Numbers 8.6.7, 1 Samuel 10.1, Psalm, Psalm 2 verse 2. That's especially important because it's about Jesus as king. My anointed. It's always about an anointing. And so what happened? The baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes down and ascends on him. It is a pouring down on him, okay? Um, back to the notes. As well, the sacrament represents the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which in Acts chapter 2, 17 to 18, and verse 33, is said to be poured out on the apostles and later to have fell on them. And so they were baptized in chapter 11, verses 15 to 16. But what do you see there? The words speaking about their baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was poured out and down, falling on them. That isn't a dunking into the Holy Spirit. And that's what baptism is representing, the cleansing and washing of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more to this, but that alone is pretty significant. Van Dixorn says, the actions of sprinkling and pouring repeatedly symbolize the divine work of salvation in the Bible in a way that immersion simply does not. Baptism is symbolizing the act of the Holy Spirit washing and cleansing us. When you wash your hands, what do you do? Stick them in there and the water falls over and cleanses. Some of you may want to throw a tub at me. They didn't have bathtubs. They, weren't bath they, they didn't have rivers where that would have been possible. I'm going to get into that. There was a sprinkling, there was a ceremonial washing, particularly that's in view with the letter to the Hebrews we'll see. But let's get to letter B. I'm going to try to stick to the notes because if I get off them, I'll go too long. The Greek word for to baptize, baptizo, has a broad usage, admittedly, but primarily baptizo means to dip, to purify, to wash. And dipping not like dunking, but it's just a little... Um, it is used interchangeably with another Greek word that means to wash. Baptism represents inner cleansing and purification by the regenerating and renewing washing of the Holy Ghost that unites us to Christ. Roland Ward explains, the root idea of the Greek word baptize is not total immersion, but an intensive dipping, which involves a transformation. The idea like dyeing, you know, you have yarn and you want to have a, sil a little color. Yeah, you keep kind of putting in there and so that it dies and it has this taking over effect. Um, uh, okay, so in Mark 7 verse 4 wash and washing is the Greek word baptize and baptizing including a table but the table is not immersed go wash the table they didn't mean go throw it in the pool like they would have had one right? they're using in the Greek the word baptizo but they don't mean dunk it they mean go wash it Okay. so we see the use of this word all through scripture it's really obvious in Luke 11, verse 38, the Pharisees marveled that Jesus had not washed, but the literal Greek is baptized before dinner. 
Well, they didn't mean, I can't believe you didn't go dunk yourself underwater. They mean, I'm surprised you didn't wash your hands. But it's Greek. It's really baptizo. But they understand it means wash my hands. Matthew 15, verse 2 of his disciples. And they didn't mean diving into a lake, but using a utensil, letter C. And by the way, this is very significant to the discussion. So you might circle letter C. In Hebrews 9, 13, 19, and 21, and Hebrews chapter 10, they refer to the Old Testament sprinklings of blood to ceremonially cleanse, atone, or sanctify the people and their tabernacle and its ceremonial tools as baptisms, translated washings, but see the connection with chapter 10, 22, and 24 related to sprinkling of Christ's blood to cleanse the consciences. So here's the thing. When Hebrews in chapters 9 and 10 talks about the sprinklings and the washings of the Old Testament system, the blood of the animal that cleanses a person and makes them clean before God, it is not a dunking in the blood. It is a sprinkling in the applying of the blood, which is why David says in Psalm 51, touch me with hyssop and I shall be clean. What is the hyssop? It's the plant brush they use to sprinkle the blood, the priest. It's a sprinkling. What do they do at Mount Sinai after the Paschal Lamb and they're going to be God's covenant people? He sprinkled the people with blood. It's never a dunking. But in Hebrews, when it talks about this washing of the blood of the animal, representing truly the washing of Christ of his people, the word is baptizo, but it is very clearly understood as a sprinkling. It's absolutely understood to be a sprinkling. I think that's one of the most significant things as we think about the mode and the meaning of the mode. We are cleansed by Christ's blood, the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, and the animal's blood was spilt, and then it was sprinkled upon the altar or the people, whatever symbolizing ceremonial cleansing that is actually true when the blood of Christ is sprinkled upon us. And baptism represents that, and so that's why pouring or sprinkling is the mode. Because that's the connection. God saving us in the blood of Christ. God washing us in the blood of Christ. Titus 3, 5, and 6. What do we quote every Lord's Supper? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see the connection? I feel like the, the jury can rest there, but I got more for you. Letter D. Moses and the Old Testament church were baptized under the cloud, uh, that is, of Christ, and by the Red Sea. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4, this is a really significant one. Just as Noah and his family were baptized by the floodwaters, 1 Peter 3, 20-22, they were savingly sprinkled by merciful mist, while God's enemies were immersed with judgment. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4 says, they were baptized in the Red Sea, but they were not dunked in the Red Sea. How would they have been baptized? The mist as they walked through the Red Sea. Who was immersed? The Egyptians to their death. They were not baptized. The church was baptized. By the way, when we get to it next week, who was there? Also the children, as they walked through the Red Sea. A little bit of a taste for next week. And then also, Peter says, they were baptized by the floodwaters. Where was God's church during the flood? Inside or outside the ark? Inside. Were they swimming in the floodwaters? Were they going dunked under their heads in the floodwaters? No, it would have been their death. Who was dunked 
in the, in the floodwaters. The people God was destroying. Who was baptized? If it says they were baptized, Noah, how were they baptized? It was the mist. The mist of the floodwaters while they were kept safe and dry. It was the sprinkling of the mist, you see. It says they were baptized in both cases. I think that's the other thing I would circle, letter D. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4 is a very compelling one, along with uh, 1 Peter 3, 20, 22. In both cases, it says they were baptized, but they were not dunked. They were sprinkled. Letter E, bottom of page 182. Paul was baptized standing up by a bedside. Acts chapter 9, verse 18. Acts chapter 22, 16. Quote, in the case of Saul's baptism, when he becomes Paul, the baptism of the household of Cornelius and that of the household of the Philippian jailer, since each of these acts of baptism was carried out within a home, Acts 9, 11, 10, 25, 16, 32. And in the last case, sometime after midnight, Acts chapter 16, 33, but before dawn, verse 35, it is virtually certain that these baptisms would not have been by immersion, since few homes in those times would have had facilities for such an act. That is Robert Raymond in his New Systematic Theology. Paul was standing up when he got baptized. That's not a dunking. Uh, Letter F, top of page 183. When it is said of outdoor baptism events that they were, quote, coming up out or up from the water, Mark 1, Acts chapter 8. Note that Luke says such of Philip and the eunuch, but Philip was not baptized. He did the baptizing. And the eunuch had just read Isaiah 53, which is preceded by Isaiah 52, 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. See also Ezekiel 36, 25. That's an insight also from Robert Raymond. That's important. Let me break that down just a little bit. A lot of times people argue, but it says they came up out of the water. Okay, if you're having a picnic at the lake or by the beach, come up now, come up out from the beach, come up, come up out from the lake, come up. They're not, you're not talking about get up from out from under the water. You're saying, come on up, it's time for lunch. <laughs> it's, they were coming up from the place of the water. It's not speaking of them coming up from under the water. And again, when it says that Philip and the eunuch, the eunuch was baptized in the same language as used, Philip was not baptized, but it said Philip and the eunuch came up from the water because that's where they went to do the baptizing. But they weren't going under the water. And again, what is the eunuch reading right before he gets baptized? Isaiah 53, which is about what? Jesus the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, who takes away our sins by his blood. The chapter just before is 52.15, so shall he, that is Jesus, sprinkle many nations. Bring that back to Hebrews 9 and 10. He sprinkles us with his blood. We're baptized, and that's why the mode of baptism is sprinkling, representing the priestly work of Christ, applying his own blood as the Lamb of God to cleanse us of our sins and mark us as his people They came up from out of the water location, not out from under the water. That's one that people bring up a lot. So when Israel crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, the priests stepped their feet into the water, but then the waters were blocked up and they crossed over on dry land, of which they then were said to come up out of. So that's in Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4. So the, the, the priests, they step into the water, 
holding the Ark of the Covenant, and then God parts the waters, and the people cross over around them, and then when they're done, they come up out of the Jordan. But when it says they come up out of the Jordan, there wasn't any water to come out of. God had separated the waters. They're coming up out of, dry, out of the dry land, but it's the Jordan River understood as the place. So since they came up out of the Jordan, but there wasn't any water when they came up out of it. It was separated, you see. So it's talking about coming out of a place. It's not speaking of a mode, okay? That's a good reference for those earlier scriptures when they were baptized. R.C. Sproul points out that uh, with where the Ethiopian and Philippian were, Acts 8.26, it is doubtful that in the desert between Jerusalem and Gaza there was enough water for an immersion. It's unlikely there would have been enough water in this place to be able to dunk them. Letter G, and by the way, we're going to be done with letter H, so hang in there, we're almost done. Van Dixhorn cites these other considerations. There were times when too many people were baptized to permit immersion. Acts chapter 2, 41 tells us that 3,000 people were baptized on one day in Jerusalem. It is hardly possible they could have all been dunked, let alone the level of the water. Uh, also, he says, there were times when baptism happened too quickly at once, Acts 16.33. The language of immediate baptism with the Philippian jailer and his family does not suggest that they went through the city and were baptized at the river or a pool. Paul probably reached for a jug or a bowl and, after explaining baptism, poured or sprinkled water on these new converts. As well... The only plausible picture of immersion in baptism is that of Romans 6 or Colossians 2. But arguably, it is plausible to us because we think of burials vertically six feet under the ground. Whereas in hard Palestinian soil, burials were often effected horizontally behind a rock in a cave. One, one moment. You see, so the thing is, is when we hear we are buried with Christ in Romans 6 in baptism, we think of going under the ground, but they almost never were buried under the ground. That's not a reference point for them. We might argue that's a bit of anachronistic, at least history, or at least for our geography. They didn't get buried in the ground. Where was Christ buried? Was he buried in the ground? No. The whole stone was moved away as he was in a cave. They didn't have that. And by the way, if you go to New Orleans, Louisiana... First time I've seen something like this coming in from the airport to the city, all the graves are above ground. It's kind of spooky to look at. I said, boy, they must make a lot of horror movies here. <laughs> but why? Because of the flooding. So the, the graves are all above ground in stone. They're not buried. But we think of that because of the normal nature of most of our reference for baptism. But when we read Romans 6, we shouldn't be thinking of it meaning being buried underground and then forced to mean you've got to be dunked. It's talking about our communion and union with Christ. But it doesn't have a reference of going under. And again, if it did, as Gordon Clark said we looked at earlier, then why wouldn't dirt instead of water have been the element used? Uh, I'm almost done, but Abraham, go ahead. You had a question? Um, you may have already gone over this. I'm not it's okay. But, um, so it's, it's, it says here that the, when he baptized the It's an excellent question you paint in the neck. 
<laughs> I don't have time to get into that tonight. Um, I'll give you an illustration. Doctor, I'm pretty sure, yeah, I'm sure, uh, when we were visiting years ago in, t in uh, Texas with um, Dr. Richard Bacon, I think he shared about how uh, somebody in a young faith realized, though, it's important to be baptized and took the wife outside in the backyard and baptized her with the garden hose. <laughs> that would not be appropriate. One of the answers needs to be at the very least, who did we learn is supposed to do the baptizing? Yeah. A minister. And as things have developed and formalized, just as the sacraments were uh, done in a formal place, uh, I don't think that doing it in some place uh, that's not uh, informal worship. But you bring up a good point, and I'm glad you remind us that the sacraments are part of worship. They're normal elements of worship, yeah. Um, so I'm not able to get into a lot of what your question is, but the quick answer is it can't just be done by anybody. It can't just be done anywhere. It has to be done in the context of a church. Now, I wouldn't say that means that a church can't have a service where they go to a local river and sprinkle them, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's reasonable and necessarily required. Yes, Isaac, real fast. It's a good question. Uh, pray that we always have our ministers, right? And uh, um, sometimes you would be looking to have a visiting minister come to do that. Usually if there are churches without a minister, uh, there's a, a minister invited, especially if you're in a denomination from within that context to come and do that administration, yeah. Okay. Uh, good questions. I wish I could spend more time on it. Very good questions. You're thinking and listening. Good job, guys. Okay, let me conclude here, section G. More importantly, Romans 6 and Colossians 2 are figures of speech for union with Christ. They are not focusing on the means and mode of the baptism rite. They're speaking of the meaning of it. And again, they are not thinking of people being buried under the earth. It's not talking about the mode, okay? Uh, some scriptures are more clear than others. We go to Hebrews 9 and 10, 1 Corinthians 10, those places. Those are much more explicit about mode, okay? Lastly, letter H, just a short sentence, and this is from Roland Ward. Total immersion lacks Old Testament precedent or clear New Testament justification. There are no grounds in the Old or New Testament for total immersion or dunking someone for the rite of baptism. I think I made a pretty good case. That's my story and I'm sticking to it, but I give you a whole bunch of footnotes and there's a lot you can listen to in the sermons through the larger catechism. You'll see at the end of this section, I give you a lot of suggested readings. Uh, but I encourage you to go ahead and keep doing your own research. And if you're not convinced, let's get together and make me, uh, earn, my, make me earn my pay and uh, get into this more with you, okay? I know I'm largely preaching to the crowd, uh, but I think it's pretty significant. So if you come to this church and you say, yeah, you know, I, I really appreciate um, what you're saying, but I'm convicted that we should dunk the kids. Or dunk the people. Actually, let's stop and think of that. You want me to dunk your baby? It's not going to happen. But, um, but you know, an adult. And I'm, no, I'm not going to accommodate that. I don't believe I scripturally have any warrant to do that. The mode and the meaning are connected. And there is clearly a mode and a meaning in the scriptures. And there's no indication of dunking in the scriptures. Romans 6 is the big one that people point to. I think we've demonstrated it's not talking about mode. Okay, let me just read that last quote. No Thomas Watson, because we're not done with this section. I got some more Thomas Watson nuggets for you next week as we finish baptism. Come back, because we're going to get into something even more controversial. And it's going to be, should we be baptizing babies? And the quick answer is, absolutely. 
Come on back and find out why. But uh, let me close again with uh, Roland Ward. Total immersion, speaking of the mode of baptism, lacks Old Testament precedent or clear New Testament justification. And what I think we want to really recognize is there are a lot of assumptions made about certain scriptures that are not logical deductions. They're just not logical deductions. I would highlight again Hebrews 9 and 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Okay, thank you for being with me. I'm a little earlier than I have been in the past, but I want to try to keep it that way. Let me close in prayer. And uh, young men, if you're not satisfied with my questions, you know where I live. Come at me and we'll give some more time to it. I would love to do that, okay? And I'm loving the questions. I'm forgetting to help me remember to have the microphone ready because I'd love for your questions to get picked up in the recordings more than they are. Uh, they almost largely aren't. But if I pass the microphone around, they will be. So help me remember that. Great questions. Keep them coming. And uh, make, me, make me earn my keep. I always like to say, if I don't have the answer, well, I'll go work on it and bring something better for you. Okay? Obviously, I'm pretty convicted and confident about this stuff. But uh, some of your questions is sort of another discussion. And maybe that's something we have a whole Wednesday night study for sometime. If it really interests you, remind me. And we'll have a study on it. I would love that. Okay? All right. Nothing more fun for a pastor than to do a study based on the request of his people. That's the, probably the most satisfying thing you could do. Okay. But I did say we'd close. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us these signs and seals of your faithfulness to your people. That you will never leave us nor forsake us. That you are our God and we are your people. Lord, we do thank you that our salvation and assurance of it is based upon you and not us. And so the sacrifice, excuse me, the sacraments signify these themes. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to further appreciate the sacraments as we take the Lord's Supper weekly and we'll study later, but even our baptism. And as we'll study more next week, we are to look back on our baptism or as the larger catechism says, we are to improve our baptism. We're to keep thinking about its meaning and essentially saying, his banner over me is love. I am my beloved, and he is mine. His banner over me is love. Thankful, thank you, Lord, that in Christ you have anointed us to be your children. You have set us apart as holy. You have cleansed and washed and renewed us. And thank you for these sacraments that are communicating what you have done and how you have done it. We thank you that you have sprinkled us with the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who is also our high priest. And as we think about our study of the prayer of Jabez last Lord's Day evening, we close praying together the Lord's Prayer, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Please come back next week and we'll finish the section, uh, the chapter on baptism.